0: Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.
1: This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for
0: up to seven adults, with 0-60 to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash ev9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely.
1: So sign up now at chumbacasino.com. That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, group. Void Prohibited by Law. See terms and
0: conditions 18. Plus. Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network. This is Hussein Mawson, and today I'll be talking with Rob Dunn, co author with Monica Sanchez of Delicious the, ev- the Evolution of Flavor and How It Made Us Human. This is a book at the intersection of human history, science, anthropology, and, oh well, flavor. Dr. Dunn is a prolific book author. He's a professor of applied ecology and the head of the public science lab at North Carolina State University. The lab studies topics in ecology, evolution, and biodiversity of humans and food. Dr. Sanchez, who unfortunately couldn't be with us today, is a medical anthropologist. Rob, uh, welcome to the podcast.
3: Oh, it's great to be on the podcast, Hussein. Thank you so much. Uh,
2: before we get into the book, I wonder if you'd begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself, where you were born, what you did in uh, grad school, and how did you become interested in evolution and food?
3: Uh, well, so uh, uh, I grew up in Michigan, went to Kalamazoo College in Western Michigan, um, met Monica. Uh, My co-author in this book at Kalamazoo College, Uh, we then both went to the University of Connecticut for graduate school. And um, then I've been various places in in route to North Carolina where we spend most of our time, uh, where I'm now a professor. And how did I get interested in evolution and evolution in food? Um, I think as as a kid, I I was very interested in in the the natural world in general. and. as an undergraduate student, I eventually came to realize that there were people that studied the natural world as a job, which which to a kid who grew up in a small town was a foreign concept. Initially, what I thought when I met those people was that they, they studied just the details of the natural world to make sense of those details and to sort of pile them up to see the big picture. And what I would come to understand uh, was, was actually more interesting was that the job of most of these people who are ecologists and evolutionary biologists was actually to understand the general rules of life and then to use those rules to make sense of the detailed stories. And so, so I was absolutely fascinated by the, the idea that this could be uh, a, w- a way of life, a profession, um, a way of making sense of the world and when i started off i really focused mostly on tropical forests and using the tools of these fields to make sense of tropical forests but throughout my career i became more and more aware that these same tools and concepts were also useful in making sense of daily life and and, and so I- invariably i sort of drifted toward the most delicious part of daily life that was food and as monica and i traveled around the world and worked around the world talking to people and eating with people it became clear that these kinds of tools combined with Monaco's tools um, coming from anthropology shed shed a light on food and pleasure and deliciousness that seemed as though it was kind of absent from the story. And so that's the roundabout route, um, which obviously has lots more details and versions and, and everything else, but that's more or less how we got
2: there. Well, that's a very interesting segue to my first question, because the book, no doubt, tries to situate flavor in a more central position in our lives, especially when it comes to evolution of human species, but also non-human species, um, if you will. So in the book, it's a collection of dinner and travel experiences over years that you and Dr. Sanchez share with us. But there's also a series of scientific results and uh, publications related to the work. So you take us to ancient Rome, but then you take us to the uh, first decade of the 20th century in Japan, talking about Japanese foods. But then you move to more recent fields of stoichiometry. So given this variety of sources, uh, when did you both decide to start writing the book? And how did you connect all of these dots during the writing process?
3: Yeah, that, that's a good question. So when we first started running the book, um, we really imagined it more as a series of stories in which we would shed different kinds of light on the s- stories. And, uh, and so that I think we conceived, I mean, probably a decade ago. And so talked about and stood over versions of those stories for a long time. But as we started to write, it became clear that there was this missing element to what people were uh, to discussions about food. And, and so behind those stories, there then became this big idea that uh, kept rising up in each of these chapters, and we felt like well, we, we had to deal with it um, more directly. And that big idea was th- this idea of flavor and deliciousness. And simply put, just that uh, flavor uh, and deliciousness evolve as sensory perceptions, and they evolved in order to, to lead animals toward the foods that they historically needed. And that all around us, uh, species are making choices based on flavor and deliciousness. And to me, as, a, as an ecologist and evolutionary biologist, that this was true for non-human animals was, um, if not obvious, I think something that people think about a fair bit, but don't talk about. And then to Monica as an anthropologist there was an element of it that was also obvious in thinking about humans, but we realized this this hadn't really been connected. And so the longer struggle with the book was then to raise that idea up and to use it to illuminate these these series of stories in a common way across time and culture and space and and much else. Uh, Interesting.
2: So the book has nine chapters, and as a reader, I would divide them into two parts. The first is based centrally on human anatomy, there's a focus on the tongue, the nose, and the brain. And the second part shifts to be more focused on different types of foods and flavors. So in the first chapter, you tell us about uh, taste receptors on the tongue that are somehow connected to the brain. And you argue that pleasure and displeasure, while having food, have been, evolutionary speaking, uh, mechanisms that help species to be guided to have the nutrients they need or avoid the ones that they don't. Uh, there is this connection between survival and pleasure, which I find interesting. So could you tell us more about that?
3: Sure. So, so taste receptors are, are super ancient. They're kind of a, a dumb, uh, simple sensory system that we find across um, vertebrates and in different forms across animals more generally. And some of those taste receptors are really about warning us. And so bitter taste receptors, for example, they very clearly evolved so as to recognize potentially dangerous chemicals and to trigger a warning signal to our brain. And so bitter taste receptors, there are many kinds of them, but they just... Send one signal. So the bitter taste of hops and the bitter taste of coffee is actually identical. Their difference is because of aroma, not the taste. And so bitter has long been understood to be a warning. And if you look at different mammals, for example, if you look at your dog, if you look at your cat, um, if you look at a mouse, and if you look at humans, they have different bitter taste receptors. And so different things that they ingest uh, warn them away. And those differences, t- to a large extent, relate to the details of their evolutionary history and what tended to be dangerous in their environment. And so that's one part of the system. That's the stick of the carrot and the stick. Uh, and w- we encounter it all the time. And and you can learn to ignore those signals. And so we, we learn to uh, enjoy hoppy beer. We learn to enjoy a coffee. But, but at birth, they're... Um, their valence is negative. Their warnings. Also uh, on the tongue mm-hmm. are. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Say. Oh no no. Please go ahead. So also on the tongue then are a, a set of other taste receptors th- that that are the carrot in the carrot and stick story. And so sweet taste receptors uh, reward us for finding calories. And you know most often today we don't typically need more calories, but for most of our evolutionary history, um, as mammals, easy to to break down. Uh, high-calorie sugars were advantageous to us. Um, ancestrally, we tended to need more salt than our diets provided. And so salt taste receptors rewarded us for salt. Umami taste receptors, um, which is sort of the savory taste that you get from MSG, but from sun-dried tomatoes, lots of other places, reward us for finding nitrogen. And so we ha- we have this sort of very crude system for leading us to things that on average we've tended to need in the past. And it evolves and changes. And so your taste receptors are not the same uh, as a dog's, as an elephant's, as a mouse's, but that evolution is relatively slow. And so as a result, uh, my taste receptors, your taste receptors are very similar to those of our ancestors 5 million years ago. And so we're still looking for those things in our diet that we tended to need a long time ago. And, and so we've not caught up with the realities of our immediate need. And so that's that's part of that first taste uh, chapter. But the other part is about the stoichiometry, which we can come back to, which is why is it that we need these particular things? You know, why do we need more sugar? Why do we need more nitrogen? Why do we need more salt? Which turns out to be uh, interesting in and of itself.
2: I wanted to ask you about the point on bitter and sour taste, but also I know you mentioned this in Chapter 6 when you talked about spices. Uh, some of these uh, traits are either to trigger warnings for us so that we shouldn't maybe consume them, but also they might have been defense mechanisms for those species to protect themselves. And you in the book call uh, the act of us acquiring those tastes and still drinking beer or coffee you call it a bold act uh, why do you think humans chose to still uh, ignore those warnings and move on consuming those foods
3: so, so I think they there I mean it's yeah so it's a super interesting question and I think the first thing is to recognize that it's a question that needs to be answered I think we um, I mean spices are a good example we just take it uh, Uh, to to be normal that we would enjoy spices Um, but most of the spices that we enjoy are are plants where the active ingredient the thing we like about them is actually a warning that evolves to warn off mammals and so somehow (laughs) we're uh we're doing something that's uh that's out of sync with this evolutionary system and so i think there. I mean, across cultures and times and contexts, there are a variety of reasons that we do this. Um, and we go into some detail on this in this spice chapter in the specific context of spice. Uh, s- sometimes it's a kind of thrill of the food. And so psychologists have argued this with spicy peppers, for example, that if you eat a really spicy pepper, it's kind of like going to a scary movie uh, where you've learned that it's not actually dangerous. But, but it feels as though it's dangerous. And so perhaps it's releasing some endorphins. Uh, the other piece to this can be that some of these spices um, may have functional components. So they may help to preserve food. They may have functional roles in our guts. And so we may have learned to appreciate those sort of secondary benefits of those spices, even if the first um, response is uh, negative. And but, in all those cases, a really key part of this story is that whereas taste is really not learned, your experience of taste um, is really most mostly uh innate instinctive um a direct sensory response your experience to to olfaction to smell to aromas is almost all learned and and so when we think about some of these spicy things, we can think about those two systems together where the taste of a bitter compound is warning us away, but we might have learned to like the aroma. Um, And so if you think about coffee, the aroma of coffee can be deeply pleasing. Uh, Well, that's not innate. It's not instinctive. It's not hardwired. We've learned to be pleased by it. Uh, And and so as we think about the composite experience of pleasure, it's really these two systems along with other systems that that are working in concert. And so learning can allow us to do some some much more complex things than just responding to our tongue that said many many of our choices are still primarily guided by our, our tongues and so if you look at the you know look at the processed foods aisles of a grocery store the processed food I- food aisles of grocery stores largely are in response to the tongue's demands um, and so we have this kind of conflict in our brains, between what the tongue wants, what we've learned is good, and then maybe this third thing, what actually would be good for us. Um, and they all come up in different ways in different contexts.
2: Speaking of demands, um, and we already touched on this, you tell us about uh, the science of stoichiometry, which I think is centered around the idea of demand. If you can tell us more about this and what what is the science?
3: Sure. So, uh, In ecology, there are lots of subfields that if you talk to somebody who's in that subfield, they imagine the subfield to be enormous and so full of people and and so much more uh, prominent than it used to be. But from the outside, uh, lots of ecological subfields no one's ever heard of. And so ecological stoichiometry is probably one of these fields. And ecological stoichiometry is about a kind of basic biological reality which is that if you imagine a stack of food in front of you, and then you think about your body, somehow when you eat food, you have to balance which elements and which compounds are in that stack of food in front of you with what your body needs to make new cells and then what your body needs as fuel. And so there's kind of an equation that relates what you ingest to to what you are and maybe the other part of that equation is what you excrete. And, And so the question is, how does one balance what's out there in the world with what the body needs? How do you know uh, how much nitrogen to get, how much potassium, um, how much molybdenum, molybden, I can never say it, but molybdenum, there we go, more or less. Uh, and, and, and we don't really. And so, so how, how does this work? How do we balance this equation? Well, different species do it differently. And so one way you can do it is just to eat a lot. And then for your sort of physiological machinery to excrete what you don't need and so this is what aphids do uh, aphids rely on in- ingesting either phloem or in some cases xylem from plants which is super low in the nutrients they need and they compensate for the lack of nutrients in their food by just excreting huge quantities of sugar water and so Manna from the Bible uh, is probably this kind of sugar water that's excreted by aphids and scale insects. And so that's one way to do this. But if we were to do that, we would, we would be in the bathroom all day long. It's not, it's, not, it's not a very pleasant option. The other way is somehow to figure out what you need and to seek out those things. And so that, that's where the tongue fits into the story, is the tongue leads us toward those things that historically, priests that ancestrally tended to have been rare. The other part of the story that's interesting is if you think about our bodies and then you think about the environment, there are many, many things that are common in our bodies, but that are rare in our foods and in our surrounding environment. And so salt would be one. If uh, you're an omnivore, there's way less sodium in plants than there is in our bodies. There's way less nitrogen too in plants than there is in our bodies. And so you might ask, well, why would evolution shape our bodies so to de- so as to depend on something that's so rare and the truth in part is that our cells evolved um our ancestral cells evolved in the sea when our ancestors were fish or even before fish and so the things that are common in our cells are actually those elements that are common in the sea and so when we moved ashore we created this kind of uh imbalance and what was available and what we needed. And and so taste in that context actually took on a far more important role than it did in the sea. And so ecological stoichiometry concerns itself with all of this balancing. Um, And and so it's actually a pretty fascinating field that's rarely uh, held up uh, to any conversations, but it influences all kinds of things like uh, what happens when you add too much nitrogen to a forest? What happens when a forest doesn't get enough calcium? and all of those things sort of cascade through through the world, or what happens when you think about a city where in a city, humans inadvertently dump huge concentrations of simple sugars into the environment? How does that affect what the wild species around us need and and so it's it's a a kind of simple set of equations with all, all sorts of consequences
2: well, one could read the first two chapters of the book, and I was thinking at least for like. I was thinking in terms of two potential narratives. One would be the survival mode, where species could first settle for any available food they have around them to survive. And after securing survival, members of this species would have the luxury to expand their choices with respect to flavor. Yet also, both chapters can suggest a different story where these two trends might have been running in parallel. Which story from the evidence we have so far do you think is more feasible and why?
3: So, so uh, the old ecological story is, is that first one that you suggest. And it's ecologists tend to describe it, and so do anthropologists, as optimal foraging. And where optimal is a little bit deceptive. Optimal, in this case, really means the optimal number of calories. And so ecologists imagine a, a bear looking out in the woods and and the the bear thinks about how to find the most calories possible in the least amount of work and and so there's a lot of work in that mode but what the people who, for the most part study optimal foraging uh, would concede and and do concede uh, in conversation but not much in in writing is that even for an animal that you imagine to Uh, just be trying, even for an animal that you imagine is just trying to get the biggest bang for its butt calorically, it still has to make decisions each time it finds a food item. Do I eat this or do I not eat this? And those decisions are all ultimately uh, driven by the perception of that animal about whether the thing is food or not food or good food or bad food. And, And so Even in a model where you imagine something is just looking for as many calories as possible. And so ignore things like nitrogen, ignore things like, um, well, ignore phosphorus, ignore salt. Um, Just think about calories. The animal still has to somehow decide, do I or don't I eat this? And then if you think about a bear, this involves not just what you hunt down, but it also involves when you eat a prey item, which parts of the animal do you eat and not eat? And so, always there are these two things happening together, and and so, to some extent, they're in opposition because the the optimal foraging su- suggests this very simple um, model of the world, but, but realistically, if we step back, they're they're kind of different ways of looking at this this question. And what I think that the the evidence by and large suggests is that when you look in at the details of how animals are deciding, that we tend to see these decisions that are based on pleasure. And so this for sure is true for chimpanzees. And, and, and so part of the time that we, we were working on this book, we were based in Leipzig, Germany at the Max Planck Institute and surrounded by people working on uh, chimps and the tools that chimps make and what chimps eat. And one of the most remarkable things about chimps is that different chimp populations have different cultures and make different tools and use those tools uh, to find different foods and and if you were thinking about the sort of optimal foraging model um, you would tend to imagine that the the chimps would just look for calories or they would just look for the same things everywhere and instead, of what you see when you look at what the chimps eat is that they seem to seek out foods that are tastier and when you look in more detail, what you see is that they do that even uh, if those foods have ceased to provide them what they need. And so a couple of examples here are interesting. And so uh, one of the ones that's most intriguing to me is, is that uh, at a couple of field sites, Christoph Bosch and colleagues have documented chimps that take a big, thick stick and they pound into the ground to get to ground nesting bee honey that can be as much as six, seven, eight, even nine feet below ground. And, and so they were trying to understand the sort of the behavior. How, why does this behavior play out? But one of the things they discovered is that in getting that honey, the chimps can take months or even years of pounding into the ground. And when they finally get to it, the calories that it provides are on the order of like one day's worth of calories. And when the chimps get to the honey, they have to share it with whoever the social rules mandate, that they share it with whoever's around. And so for a bang for your buck perspective, clearly this is not a rational behavior. But it makes sense if the chimps are are deciding on bang for your buck based on what's pleasurable or not pleasurable. And so when you zoom in on these behaviors, you see this again and again, that animals in those moments of decision, are actually employing their sensory uh, response to the food. And sometimes that lines up perfectly with bang for your buck, it lines up with the calories they need. But the more interesting cases are when it doesn't line up and you can kind of see, oh, oh, the actual moment of decision is way more about their perception, their pleasure.
2: Well, in chapter four, you give us this and several other examples that fit into this narrative. Um, and you you and Dr. Sanchez acknowledge that optimal foraging might be playing a role. There's also cultural factors, environmental factors, climating and whatnot. Uh, but by the end of that chapter and throughout the book, there are always hints that flavor, maybe flavor has been overlooked in many studies. Uh, so I have more question about the culture and academia in general. To what? To what extent do you think this has has been the case that flavor flavor has been overlooked, and how uh, do you think this might be related to this quote unquote overly serious predominant culture in academia that might not consider pleasure or flavor a priority to study?
3: Yeah, that's a great question, Hussein. Uh, I think it's got two pieces. I think the first piece is maybe the silos of academia, and so. Flavor doesn't fit neatly into any silos, and so uh, it's partially about neuroscience, it's partially about animal behavior, um, it's partially about culinary science, it's it relates to anthropology, and and so I think part of the issue is that it's in many different fields, it's kind of at the edge of the field, but because the fields are all divided up. Um, it's easy to miss that in the those in the collection of those fields that it's actually more central, and so I think that's part of it. And um, and, and we we saw that uh, while writing the book, in as much as when we would have dinner parties or get together with people for dinner uh, out somewhere, that often we were bringing together people from across these disciplines. And so we'd have a chimpanzee researcher and we'd have a chef. And when we had those people in the same place, it was easy to see where their interests overlapped, where their, where their thoughts and what was going on overlapped. But they were almost never professionally in the same place. You know, chimpanzee researchers and chefs don't hang out too much. Um, but then there's the other part that you... And so, but actually, that, that's a pretty big deal, I think. And uh, if you and some of the people who featured flavor more uh, were, in the, were writing in the late 1800s, early 1900s when fields were a little bit less divided. And so I think that's part of it. Um, and, and just to make that point even more clearly, I mean, the people who study the tongue don't really talk to people who study the nose. Like they don't work together. Different meetings. And the people who study sour don't necessarily talk to the people who study umami. not Different meetings, the, the, the whole deal. And so that's part of it. But then there's also this part about pleasure not being serious. And, uh, and I think that's also a, big part of it that um and and maybe one version of one way of seeing this is to look at another aspect which is play that for ecologists the idea that animals play was long kind of a taboo uh topic um and not taken very seriously and it it took a couple of generations of people studying play for it to start to emerge as actually a pretty important behavioral uh, phenomenon for mammals at least and and I think in part for play it was because play wasn't serious, play was childish, play was a little bit ridiculous, and I think maybe something too for flavor and deliciousness. Um, you know, if I had to go to a meeting with my dean or my chancellor, and and say that I'm I'm writing about flavor or deliciousness, uh, you know, they'll be interested as humans, but they'll be way less likely to positively respond to the idea. As uh, as serious scholars or administrators, and so I think there's there's something there about how serious we take ourselves. Um, uh, I don't know what's what's your experience. You're saying in, in that regard, you've talked to lots of scholars.
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.
2: Well, I very much relate to that. Even in everyday research, I'm always limited by disciplinary confines, and I think that's the case for many uh, researchers as well. And I have to say that one unique point about the book is that you and Dr. Sanchez are coming from relatively different backgrounds, like ecology and anthropology. And one could tell throughout the book that there are two lenses that intersect, but also sometimes the jargon used is a bit hybrid, which I find very interesting. So given the institutionalization of those disciplines, and sometimes those boundaries that are well entrenched for a variety of reasons, what do you think would be some good ways to get around those limitations and connect the dots further?
3: Um, yeah, that's a great question. Uh... So I think some of the limitations are bureaucratic and they're boring, but they have a huge impact. And so we work a lot on, on uh, well, this this time that we, sort of my, my research lab works a lot on the ecology of food. And so the ecology of sourdough bread, for example. And uh, in doing that work, we have a really interdisciplinary team. So we have historians, we have a theologian right now, we have evolutionary biologists. And every so often it comes to a head um, the recognition that these different partners on the team get very different credit for the same work and and just to take two examples we realized that so for ecologists if you write a paper with many many authors the first author and the last author get the most credit and then the in-between authors still get a lot of credit you don't divide by the number of all total authors uh, or anything like that um, and, and so for the first and last, And and adding more authors to the middle doesn't reduce the credit for the first or last author. So there's no disincentive to having a big team. Um, But the theologian that we work with, uh, Amina Alassis Bradford, for her field, uh, she mostly gets rewarded for sole author works. And uh, if there are two authors, she gets half as much credit and every additional author takes a piece of the pie of the work that she does. And so if we do a big project with many collaborators, she just gets a teeny bit of credit. And then to take another example, the historian in our group only gets credit for single authored books. And so none of the work that he does with us does he get formal credit for. And so this gets boring and and detailed and and yet... um, it lurks behind a lot of collaborations. And, and so I think there has to be some attention paid to, how do we create collaborative projects where everybody can find some kind of reward? Um, and so I think that's a, that's a tricky part. And and it took me a long time in my career to recognize that it was actually an issue kind of buried in, in little pieces of tension in, in interdisciplinary collaborations. Um, but I think another piece is that the conversations have to be slow. I mean, Hussein, you mentioned the different kinds of jargon, that that in, in different fields, people just use different made-up words and they use them, or they use the same word for different things. And, and so you have to have slow enough conversations that you can recognize when that's happening. Um, and, and so in practice, for me, that's meant um, being very intentional about making sure the group knows that when, you know, one of those words comes up, that we have to pause, that we have to make sure we understand it. Uh, and, and so it, it's those sort of, um, I mean, s- seemingly banal pieces that I, I think are really important. And then there's just the other pieces that people have to be in the same room. They have to somehow be uh, talking to each other in the first place. And And so I think we have to create Settings and situations that allow people to come together across disciplines, um, and it's really difficult. I've been involved in lots of interdisciplinary work that uh, ultimately hasn't been able to surmount those challenges. But I think the you know the reality is, as we look forward, I mean, almost all the major challenges we face as a society are interdisciplinary. You know, there are very few uh, major societal challenges: COVID, climate change, you name it. Where you can just work in your narrow discipline and not talk to anybody and really contribute to a solution. And so, on the one hand, in the context of flavor, it seems well, you know, maybe this is trivial, maybe this is, um, you know, fun thinking about pleasure. But it's also kind of a model for this this bigger sort of question of how, if we can't come together to talk about flavor, how are we ever going to come together to talk about COVID or climate change or systemic racism or any of these? even bigger issues that require even more disciplines
2: i couldn't agree more on that uh, like, it, you and i share many of those thoughts um, uh, I'll, I'll try to get back to the book and in the fourth chapter you and dr Chan sanchez as we said you tell us about culinary extinc- extinction where a specific type of food is overly consumed and driven to be extinct Uh, And I know in earlier chapters, like in chapter three, which is centered on the nose, but also in the first two chapters uh, centered on the topic of the tongue, you tell us that also over time species could either gain or lose or regain, for that matter, specific taste or smell receptors throughout evolution. Um, And that means a certain species could recognize or not recognize a specific type of food. Uh, if you can give us one example of how a certain species lost, whether a taste or smell receptor, and why would that happen?
3: Yeah, so, so it's super fascinating. And uh, this work on the loss and gain of taste receptors in particular, um, it's really all almost in the last 10 years. And it, um, it was very difficult to study until we knew the genes for different taste receptors, and we still don't know all of them. Uh, but once one knew the genes, one could sort of compare those genes in different species and, and figure out where the uh, where those versions of the genes were, were still intact and could still make their proteins and where they were broken. And so w- one of the early discoveries in this regard uh, is that cats, felines in general, have broken sweet taste receptors. And so we can still find in their genomes the, the bits of the gene that would correspond to the sweet taste receptor. Um, but it now is doesn't have all the right genetic letters to make the proteins that are needed for the, that taste receptor. And, and, and so the inference among evolutionary biologists about these kinds of losses is that they tend to relate to cases to particular animals in which... Um, the taste receptor was no longer playing a fundamental role to the survival of that animal. And so if in an individual the there was a mutation that broke the taste receptor, that this the descendants of that individual will be no more or less likely to survive. And so this is what it looks looks like happened in cats, that cats and ingesting whole prey items um, that have plenty of, of calories. Uh, receive no extra benefit from seeking out sugary things. And so cats with a broken sweet taste receptor didn't do more poorly. And and so the lineage that with the broken taste receptor happened to um, have then begat the entirety of modern felids. And it's also possible in a scenario like that, that there was some cost to seeking out sugar. And so imagine that you're a cat and uh, and. You get enough energy, you get enough of everything you need from eating mice or whatever. Um, but your sweet taste receptor keeps rewarding you for finding sweet things that you don't actually need. In those cases, you would actually expect individuals with the broken sweet taste receptor not only not to do worse, but to do better. And so we've now, there are now quite a few of these examples, um, some of which make sense and some are quite mysterious. One of the more mysterious ones is that dolphins and whales ha- have lost. Um, it appears all of their taste receptors, and so whatever the pleasure is they get from ingesting their food, we don't know what that pleasure is. Uh, we, we don't. We can't think yet enough from the perspective of a dolphin or a whale uh, t- to know what it what it feels like for them to find a, a tasty fish or whatever it is that they encounter. The flip side of that is we also see new kinds of taste receptors evolving. And there are lots of examples of this now in both both directions. And so, uh, for example, there was a recent beautiful study looking at hummingbirds. And it was known that the ancestors of hummingbirds, which were swift-like birds, um, did not have a sweet taste receptor. And swifts don't have a sweet taste receptor. And so the question was, well, What do hummingbirds get from eating nectar? Why would they choose to eat nectar again and again? Uh, And a research group in Germany was able to show that what's happened is that the umami taste receptor in hummingbirds and ancestral hummingbirds actually evolved so as to respond both to sugar and to amino acids. And so, hummingbirds at some point in their transition to feeding on nectar, which maybe was first about the liquid and then about the sugar evolved so as to be able to be rewarded for what they, with their particular lifestyle needed. And so we see these, these changes, um, but they're slow. And, and so they're, they're uh, tens of millions of year kinds of changes, not thousands of year kinds of changes. And so evolution tinkers with the system, um, but, 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 but not very quickly. And, and so, Uh, it means it's easy for animals to have a kind of mismatch with their environment and what they need, especially if they're moving around like our own ancestors did. So, uh,
2: like, I'm interested in what you said about whales and dolphins. Uh, When we say that they lost all of the receptors, does that translate in our everyday life that, for example, they are less picky about the fish they consume, or at least from what what we know, or that's not necessarily the case?
3: We, do, we don't know. Um, and, and this is one of these cases where I think thinking about flavor a little bit more would leads to different questions. Um, and so we do know that dolphins prefer some things over others, but we don't know why. Um, and, and so would a dolphin be uh, less picky than a seal, for example? Um, and what what is that pickiness on the basis of? Uh, it wouldn't be too hard to study that, and probably the data are already out there if there's an ambitious graduate student. But, but to go back to your question, you're saying that would be the prediction. The, the prediction is that if there's no other system in dolphins that's rewarding them, if they're just re- being rewarded for being full, um, then they should, be, they should be less picky. So the, the, it's a good prediction. It's not a prediction that's been tested
2: interesting um in in chapter five you and dr sanchez like flip the lens a bit and after talking about culinary extinction you tell us in this chapter which is uh titled forbidden fruits that some fruits actually uh, preserved their existence because they were delicious which i find a bit paradoxical i was talking to dr athena actipus in a recent interview she studies cancer evolution and our conversation was also uh full of similar topics where many of the events and the evolutionary process were sounding paradoxical so how did the deliciousness of those fruits preserve ironically their existence um yeah
3: well, so i, I talked to athena a lot about these issues too uh and uh uh, and her book is a wonderful one, so if you're listening, uh, go buy it. Um, but the often the evolutionary paradoxes relate to time, and and so, so sometimes they relate to different time periods. And so um, one might say, well, if if uh, evolution can fine tune taste receptors, why are we still led toward things we we don't need? And and so in that case, the paradox is that. Um, that our environment and which foods are available can change much more quickly than can our taste receptors, and there probably actually is re- selection on our taste receptors even today. Um, and so that's one kind of time. Uh, another kind of time relates to the order of events, and and so the paradox with regard to the the fruits. Um, well, wow. there are several kinds of paradoxes with regard to fruits. So let's the the first kind of paradox is that. Fruits are one of the one, one weird things uh, ecologically that actually evolved in order to be eaten. And and so plants produce fruits to tempt animals to ingest those fruits to then carry their seeds to a new place that is in one way or another better. And, and so that's the first kind of paradox that, that any organism would want to be eaten. Uh, and it's an amazing paradox in that fruits have evolved hundreds of times um and and so this isn't you know evolution returns to this as a strategy oh please eat me so that i may succeed and and so that in and of itself is kind of paradoxical Um, uh, and i'll just say as an aside i mean the fascinating thing about fruits is that different fruits um different plants produce fruits with different characteristics depending on what animal they want to attract which depends on the tongues and the noses of those animals. And so even when scientists aren't always taking flavor seriously, fruits do. But in that chapter, the, the other paradox um, r- relates to the, the series of events that leads to the extinction of the megafauna. And and so in, in North America, for example, also in Asia and Australia, um, the first humans to move in... Uh, encountered an extraordinary abundance of big, delicious mammals and to a lesser extent birds and ate them and combined with climate change, as a result, extinguished most of those uh, species, which we argue in the book are plausibly uh, the ones that were the most delicious too. Um, But when those species were extinguished, uh, the species that depended on those species, so think mammoths, think mastodons, think elephants in Europe, uh also were threatened and so the other kind of paradox is is that when we look around our in our environment nonetheless some of the species that depended on mammoths or ele- elephants or giant sloths are still around and so how can this thing these fruits that evolved to be attractive to the extinct species still be here If their partners are missing, and in that case, the resolution of this other paradox is that uh, a subset of those fruits have the right attributes to to be attractive to humans, and so humans continued to eat them even after the megafauna went extinct. Probably more after the megafauna went extinct uh, because there there was less competition, and so the subset of the megafauna fruits that happened to be attractive to humans have been passed along to us today, and so we see this in the grocery store in the form of watermelons, apples, pears, mangoes, um, anything with a grape, papayas, uh, a disproportionate number of our most delicious fruits result from the series of happenings that all in some way or another relate to flavor and are embedded in this weird set of superficial paradoxes.
2: And does this usually relate to the fact that these fruits are consumed and in the process their seeds are being scattered all across a certain terrain so they keep growing or there are multiple processes behind that? No,
3: th- that's, that, that's the main process. So the, the, the main goal of the, the fruits for the plants is that the, the, the animal that eats them will uh, disperse them uh, when it spreads its feces. And when they're dispersed, they enjoy multiple benefits. And so they're carried away from their mother because plants compete with their mothers. Their mothers tend to shade them out. And, and so they get the, that benefit. Um, if they happen to have been ingested by an elephant, they're typically or a giant sloth or a mammoth. They're deposited in a big pile of feces. So there's a nutritional benefit. Um, some, fruit, some plants produce teeny tiny fruits the ants carry away. And, and the ants actually sort of care for the seeds that then germinate outside their nests. And so the plant's getting multiple benefits from this relationship, and it can be pr- quite elaborate. And so there are some Australian plants um, that they have three layers of attraction. So the first layer attracts birds. Uh, the birds eat the fruit and deposit it in their feces. The, the fruit then has a second layer that attracts ants. And when the ants carry the, the, the fruit to their nest, it then dries out. And once it dries out, it explodes and spreads its seeds a a third layer. And so the plants are uh, employing extraordinary levels of complexity and getting where they want to go um, and taking advantage of the fact that animals move and they don't.
2: Towards the end of the book, uh, you tell us about cheese, particularly in Chapter 8, The Art of Cheese. And one interesting bit from there, out of many, was the fact that some types of cheese uh, were basically away in the not so distant past to, sh- to store milk in the months where cattle, sheep, and goats are not nursing. But I'm more even curious about um, chapter seven, which is focused on fermentation, and particularly the fermentation experiments that were conducted by anthropologist John Speth, um, and which you described. So if you can tell us about those experiments and particularly what they might tell us about the reasons behind meat fermentation in the past?
3: Yeah, that's that's a great question you're saying. So fermentation is a good example of something that chefs have long taken really seriously and home chefs, uh, but that scientists uh, were less focused on. And so uh, to a great extent, anthropologists in many regions sort of ignored fermented foods Um, They often, if they weren't the fermented foods they ate at home, uh, they often thought of them as kind of gross and vulgar and survival foods. And so fermented foods really weren't taken very seriously. Um, And they were kind of disparaged uh, by European and and American anthropologists until really the last decade or so. And so John Spaeth wrote a really important paper in which he argued that Fermentation, if you look at all these examples through from across space and time, has actually been central to humans for many, many years and takes more forms than we think. And this includes fermentation of meat. And so what Spate does is basically um, he repositions fermentation as a sort of essential or, or very central part of the human story. And then what Dan Fisher, who also happens to be at the University of Michigan where Spate is, uh, did, was to, to study this in the archeolo- paleontological-archaeological context. And so Fisher was looking at um, uh, a number of mastodon sites uh, in the U.S., and and it, several of these sites were places where it looked as though mastodons had been butchered and then pushed into ponds. And as Fisher looked at it in more detail, what he saw was evidence that, that those mastodons were then anchored to the the bottom of the pond, using intestines as rope and using rocks as an anchor. And what Fisher began to argue, and this actually now going back a number of years, was that this was a way to store this huge quantity of meat. And so if you imagine you and your family uh, have killed a mastodon and you have a small family group, so maybe you're 15 individuals, um, and you've eaten for like five days, what do you do then? You don't want to waste all the mastodon. And so, so, what Fisher argues is if you could store it by putting it in the pond, that it could be a way to, to increase the longevity of that food. It's like having a kitchen refrigerator before one had one. But it was hard to know. And so, what Fisher decided to do is what's called experimental archaeology, where um, he was able to get a dead horse from a friend and he butchered that horse using paleo tools. Um, in in the ways that he thought ancient humans in the Americas might have butchered at mastodon, and then he put it in a pond in the fall, and then he came back to the horse meat over the winter and into the spring to see how it had fermented, and to see if it was still edible. And what he found was that uh, in, indeed it stayed edible in the pond, and that it even acquired a kind of cheesy, sort of blue cheese meat steak sort of flavor profile and and so it suggested that there was the potential to safely store a mastodon or other big mammal for many, many months and in doing so to have to to need to do far less hunting because you had this food supply that could sustain you even in in hard times. And so it was an amazing experiment, but it was done uh, in an archaeological context. You um, sort really without ecologists on board or microbiologists or sensory biologists. And so there are all these sort of pieces to the story that one would, that, well, at least Monica and I would love to know about, you know, which aromas were associated with the, the horse? Um, which microbes were there? Under what conditions would the fermentation have been deadly? Um, what characteristics would a pond have to have to keep it safe that we still don't know about? Um, and when Fisher first did this work, I think it was kind of, it was off to the side of archeology, span but in the meantime, more and more people started to study fermentation and to realize that, oh, maybe this was actually a really important part of our story. Uh, and so it's, it's another context in which time comes in that. Fisher did this a number of years back in his career, but as time passed, other disciplines matured and changed. And so now his work is seen in a, in a new light. And so I, th- I think it's a, pretty ex- it's a pretty fun experiment. We were really, Before COVID hit, we were aiming to repeat the experiment in, in, the, in Denmark, but then COVID made everything slow down. So we haven't done it yet.
2: Before I ask you about your future work as we wrap up the interview, I'd like to touch on a couple of contemporary events that relate to the book's topic. So just two weeks ago, uh, a team at the University of Osaka in Japan announced that they have successfully 3D-printed a steak that highly resembles the Japanese Wagyu beef. Relatedly, we often hear about debates that relate to uh, GMOs in in foods and other advances in bioengineering um, in that realm. So while multiple factors and goals usually could be driving this type of food productions. Uh, to what extent do you think they will shape our culinary experiences in the near future, uh, particularly because uh, some, like oftentimes profit and overproduction would be the motivation and not improving the flavor?
3: Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. It's a hard question for the end, Saying, Jeez. Um, so <laughs> I, I'll start with the hopeful. So I think the hopeful would be uh i mean we need to create much more sustainable food systems and that invariably means less um and and so if we are able to find ways to to create plant-based foods sustainably um and do it in a way that's deeply pleasing that, that that may have really profound benefits to humanity uh now of course one can overproduce those foods. One can produce plant-based foods in ways that are less sustainable than producing, you know, beef. Um, but there is a hope there uh, in, in terms of sustainability that I think, at least in some contexts, will be realized. And I mean, as I look around, the number of people reimagining uh, how we make food—I mean, it's it's growing very, very quickly. Uh, Danish Technical University just hired an entire team focused on how to take waste products from the food and other industries and turn them into uh, upmarket foods, delicious foods for high-end restaurants. And so so in that space, if you could take waste food and make it not just something that's edible, but something that's extraordinarily delicious, that could be a great win. Um, Of course, industry on its own does not... uh, Necessarily cater to our better selves, um, and w- over time, uh, industrial food production has been really good at, at producing things that we want ever more of, even if we don't need ever more. Um, and, and so you can, in some way, you can think about there being like a dysfunctional mutualism between our tongues and the food industry, uh, where the tongues have craved, craved ever more salt, ever more sugar, ever more fat. Um, And the food industry is provided regardless of that was what we needed. And so there's the potential for that to continue to move in that direction. But I guess we have to hope for our better selves. um, If we don't, we're toast in a lot of ways. Uh, And I missed part of your question. You're saying sorry, it was an early one.
2: Oh, no, no, it's fine. Like uh, the first one was, how do you think? I think you touched on both how those uh, developments would affect our culinary experiences in the near future, and the second related to a profit and overproduction of those products, where flavor might not be the target. So I think your uh, your answer encompassed both, and you're more than welcome to add any point if you'd like to.
3: Yeah, I guess I would say like another so. I think there are some very hopeful threads in, in, this, in the new foods um, movement. And I mean w- one of the simple ones is that uh, a lot of vegetables are, are sort of lacking in umami taste, and, and so there's a group at the University of Copenhagen that's really interested in figuring out um, what are some of the ways we can add umami taste back into highly nutritious vegetable-based foods and, and ways to create more sustainable foods that people really enjoy. And, and so I think that there are, you know, if we have a full understanding of flavor, there are things in that vein that we can do uh, that sure. are better for us in a variety of ways. Um, I mean, a real trick in all of this is who controls uh, these processes. Um and, who, and, and so th- th- there, there are just policy levers, which is what makes it tricky. What are the policies that relate to what foods we eat, how we think about flavor, how we think about nutrition? Um, and, and those are really different from place to place. Uh, but right now, don't don't tend to reward nutrition, sustainability or flavor. So, so if we could just get even, even a couple of those, we'd be in better shape.
2: Um, you're, you're the head of the public science lab at North Carolina State University, and the lab seems to be involved in multiple projects that relate to both science research and communication. So I wonder if you could tell us about the current projects you and the lab are working on.
3: Yeah. Um, so the, right now we're doing more work on fermented foods. And so we have, uh, projects trying to understand the microbiology of different kinds of sourdough bread. Um so we have projects in that vein. Um I'm really interested in human ecology in, in this context. And so today, just as an example, uh I was doing work uh trying to understand the evolution of human thermal preferences and how those shape our world. So what what temperatures do we prefer? What temperatures do we uh need to survive? And how does that affect um, global air conditioner and heat use? And how does that affect how different societies will be affected by climate change? Um, And and that may may seem very far afield from thinking about flavor, but it's united by the fact that I'm using an evolutionary lens to think about our own story. Um, We have a project in the microbiology of clothing. And so your clothing right now is covered in microbes but we don't understand very much about which microbes. We just know that sometimes that relationship goes wrong. So for example, if you have polyester clothing that that smells really terrible, the industry calls that permafunk. Um, And it's sort of a a ecological dysbiosis. And so we're trying to understand that. And so variety of projects on the the theme of humans and human ecology and evolution, um, typically related to our daily lives.
2: Well, these all sound interesting. And I know you're a prolific book author. You have at least, correct me if I'm wrong, five books other than the recent book you co-authored with Dr. Sanchez. So I'm very much looking forward to your uh, upcoming and future books. This has been a quite interesting conversation. Uh, Rob Dunn, thank you for being with us on MBN.
3: Thank you so much, Hussein. Thanks for your uh, careful reading and great questions. I really enjoyed it.
2: Uh, thanks to you and to our listeners until next episode
1: it is Ryan here and I have a question for you what do you do when you win?